Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO, and I have a confession to make. I suffer from imposter syndrome. Despite having worked in higher education for 18 years, being award-winning, and having a great career, I still sometimes feel like I'm bluffing my way through this whole thing, and I know I'm not alone. That's why I'm really excited about today's guest. We're going to be talking about imposter syndrome and how to defeat it. Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at at JamieHuntIMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C for more opportunities to connect. Today, I'm really excited to have Tracy Plale, who is the CEO of Pickle Jar Communications, on the show to talk about imposter syndrome. Hi, Tracy. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having it's, me. It's so great to have you on the show. I This topic came up when I was first talking about topics for Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, and it seemed to really resonate with my, my followers on Twitter, um, a lot of people suffering from imposter syndrome. So I um, definitely want to have some chat about that today. But first, can you tell me a little bit about your career journey? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I've worked in higher ed for about 20 years now. Um, in fact, coming up for 20 years in about the next month or so. Um, I guess I should celebrate that in some way. Uh, <laughs> I haven't decided yet how, how yet. So um, I started my, my career um, as a failed PhD student. I actually started a PhD at the university that I ended up working at. I was working part-time in the communications office at the University of Warwick and I decided that I was enjoying the work in university communications a lot more than I was enjoying my PhD. Mm. So um, I quit my research and decided that I would work in university comms instead. And so I spent the first kind of six, seven years of my career working in-house in a university and then, you know, doing various things across various communications, marketing, web, digital, social type roles, lots of broadcast PR type stuff as well. And then in 2007, um, I decided to, to hop over into the consultancy side of things I saw a real niche around that time especially around social media consultancy in the sector which in 2007 was basically everyone asking me how they could stop people talking about them online um, and it's changed somewhat since but from there it's kind of evolved much much more broadly into content strategy and now as the, the team at Pickle Jar we do a lot of uh, content strategy and experience design work for the, the higher education sector I'm also the founder of Content Ed which is a, a community a conference for people that work in in content professions, content careers in the education sector. And then a few years ago, following some personal experience, which I'm, I'm happy to say more about um, if, if you want to go there, but um, I ended up uh, deciding that I would uh, complement my content strategy work and my leadership within my own company with coaching. 
um, as well. I had had a couple of years of working with a coach and realised that it was changing everything for me Mm. um, in the way that I saw myself, the way that I thought about the world, but also in how I was leading and doing my work. And so um, I spent a year uh, hopping back and forth across the the Atlantic between the UK and New York training to to become an ontological coach. Um, So I also have a private coaching practice as well alongside my consultancy work, which is how I end up digging into, you know, talking a lot to people about things like imposter syndrome. And it is probably the number one conversation, the number one topic that I have in my work. Wow. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it's because people just see me as a, you know, as I've somehow carved this niche for myself in working in this space in imposter syndrome or whether it's just because it's so, so pertinent in uh, higher education, but also in the content strategy profession as well, um, that I think I probably do see a lot of it in those two professions, industry sectors. And also, you know, talk about it quite a lot. So I think there's become quite a lot of interest. But you know, number one thing that people come to my coaching practice around is um, experience of imposter syndrome, wanting more kind of sense of purpose and um, and having the confidence to actually own their own kind of sense of purpose mm. and, and being able to move with that and do something about it. That is really interesting. And, and I guess it jives with the reaction when I first tweeted about this and how many people raised their hand and said, I have this issue. But for those who maybe don't know what imposter syndrome is, or they might have like the quote unquote symptoms of imposter syndrome, but haven't assigned a name to it. How do you define what imposter syndrome is? Yeah, I mean, there are a few different definitions around it. And the, the most common one that you'll see is is that people have an experience of feeling like they're a fraud or that they don't belong. Um, you know, literally that they feel like they are an imposter in a particular situation. Um, my own definition is a little bit kind of broader than, than that, um, because I think it does show up in different ways that doesn't always feel like a sense of feeling like a fraud or an imposter. For me, I often relate to it as being a state of mind where people don't believe that they are enough. Mm. Um, so really it's a conversation about enoughness and it's often a conversation about how we perceive other people to be viewing us as well and it I think it's really worth saying as well when we're talking about imposter syndrome you know the word syndrome gives it quite a lot of weight and gravitas like it's it's not actually like a diagnosed syndrome you know it's not mm-hmm. really considered to be um you know something that we would diagnose someone with like like depression or anxiety or anything like that but it is a very very real experience um for a lot of people and and it really is just a form of of not feeling confident in the space that we're in um and not feeling that we are either ready to be there or that we actually belong there yeah and it shows up in lots of different ways particularly in meetings can you tell me a little bit about that yeah, I mean, particularly with people that are coming through their career and coming through their ranks and they have exposure to, to being in meetings with people who might be in more senior roles, um, you know, higher up the hierarchy. This perception of like needing to perform or needing to show up a particular way will enter their space. And and then the kind of, you know, the, the nerves, the lack of confidence will creep in, that they feel like they're not they're not ready, that they're, the fear of failure might creep in or um, all of those kind of things could could show up. So um and one of the one of the the kind of the the symptoms as i think you just labeled it just now jamie is um the fear of being found out Mm. um and that will often show up when someone feels like they're in a a situation where they feel like they're being exposed or put on the spotlight in some way so you know having to contribute to a meeting that they don't normally attend speaking at conference or giving a presentation to colleagues or things like that where it feels like we are put under the spotlight a little bit and that therefore there is that that risk or that danger of exposure Mm. um to be able to be questioned and therefore to be able to be found out as you know not knowing enough not um not being prepared enough or whatever 
whatever the the variant of the individual's imposter syndrome might be showing up as being. Are there certain types of people or demographics or professions where imposter syndrome is more likely to surface? This is kind of a yes and a no. I see it in people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it in. Um, and that's partly because in the work that I do as a coach, you know, I'm often very, I'm often privy to very confidential conversations with people. So people will open up to me about their experience of it in a way where they won't necessarily speak up publicly um, about it. So I think there is a lot of experience of it that people don't talk about. And therefore, there are a lot of people that we wouldn't necessarily expect would have it or experience it that do have. Um, that said, there are definitely some some patterns um, around it. So some of the, the, the groups, if you will, that I, I see it showing up in, one of them is people who are traditionally excluded groups who are actually having to make the steps and the moves to actually belong in a situation that historically we would not have belonged in. So women, persons of colour, people from a socioeconomic background that may not have belonged. You know, I'm, I'm a I'm a first generation person in my family, the first person in my family to go to university. So for me, a lot of it showed up from a kind of a social capital perspective of I didn't belong. So there's definitely the kind of the the, the people who are led to believe that they don't belong by by external factors and historical and ancestral factors that, that go on, that have always kind of had this voice of telling them that they don't belong or that they're not enough in a particular situation. So that's definitely one one group that I see that um, occur quite a lot in. Um, the other group that I see it a lot in, and this is why I think we see such a prevalence of it in higher education, um, is amongst high achievers. Mm. Uh, so um, um, my, my personal belief, this is not based on any data, it's just kind of like the, the trends and the patterns that I see with the people that I work with, is that it's less that high achievers end up getting imposter syndrome and more that it's the fact that we have probably always had a degree of imposter syndrome that lead us to become high achievers. Oh, So there's a kind of like a, you know, a cause and effect thing at play there that I think is, is happening. And I have a, I have like a secret theory that again is just, it's a hypothesis. It's not based on any, any data, but I have a secret theory that a lot of academics have imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, And that the reason that they pursue academia, the reason that they, you know, climb that academic ladder of gathering more and more academic credentials and titles and and everything that we can is actually a response to a degree of imposter syndrome and feeling like we have to prove ourselves. Um, And when you actually start to notice some of the behaviours that you see in amongst faculty and amongst some of the, you know, people working in academia, you can actually see some of the kind of the drivers and the signs of it um, at play, even though they don't always talk about it openly. Um, so high achievers, uh, traditionally ex- excluded groups um, are probably the, the the two areas that I see most people um, experiencing it from. And then the, the, the third group really are people who have had some kind of experience, um, probably in their childhood, um, that has uh, told them that they're not enough mm. um, or that they're not good enough. And, you know, speaking to my own experience of this, I mean, my, my dad, most of, you know, amazing dad in the world, love him to bits, but he is oh my God, his perfectionism is just <laughs> unbearable. And, you know, when you grow up with a perfectionist parent, you're kind of, you're constantly exposed to that. Well, it's never going to be quite good enough. And it's inevitable that you kind of extrapolate that to mean, well, I therefore am not good enough. And I've had to do a lot of work unpacking that in both coaching and therapy over the, the years to, to get some degree of resolution um, around that. Hey all, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. 
I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower who are making season two of this Involify podcast possible. MindPower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. MindPower is woman-founded and owned, WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The MindPower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns to recruitment to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C.com. And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. I have this like tightness in my chest as you're talking because I feel like you, we may have the same father is what it sounds like. <laughs> um, but that, that um, you know, bringing home a all a report card and being told, well, the classes weren't hard enough or um, whatever, having that uh, impact my perception of myself and my ability at work, you know, 35 years later, is just kind of mind blowing. I, I know that I am very much not alone with it. And, you know, really a lot of this stuff of anything that we're speaking about is often a therapy based conversation. And I need to like really out myself. I'm not a therapist, so I don't tend to go there with the healing side of the work around it. But most people have some degree of awareness as to where it probably has come from um, in themselves. And for most people, it will have been formed from something that happened in childhood. And of course, our, our parents will have a lot to, to show for that. And, you know, imposter syndrome, the term itself has only really been around since, you know, the kind of 1970s so you know, I was born in 1980 so really you know I'm kind of in that first generation that has actually really had it in our vocabulary um, as mature adults to actually really grapple with it and understand it so I think you know it's fair to say that we can't really expect our parents generation to, to necessarily understand it as a concept or to recognize um, what's what's there with it and most of them probably have a degree of it my dad is probably a perfectionist because of something that <laughs> happened in his childhood you know right. that said to him you need to be perfect to everything you do so it's right. like this horrible kind of chain and knock-on effect that we have you know through the different the different generations that just perpetuate it yeah I, I often say that some of my trauma is caused by the fact that my grandpa fought in world war ii and saw his friends killed in world war ii and that that shaped how he parented and that shaped how my dad parented and if i had kids would shape how i parented and it's amazing how something like that just kind of snowballs really over successive generations we carry it in our bodies we you know even if we're not actually aware of the situation ourselves or been exposed to those particular situations i think we do actually carry it in our bodies and the experiences that we've had and the interactions that we've had with those people and we don't often do that level of deconstructing to, to actually really understand what's going on there it's fascinating so is there a career stage that you see this more in people or is it just across the gamut from early career entry level to presidents the people that hire me kind of privately as a coach tend to be a little bit further into their career mm -hmm. largely because that's where the budget's going but I definitely do see it a lot at earlier stage I think at the earlier stage it's often it can very very easily be written off or dismissed as just being that's how you should be early in mm. your career 
so I think we tend not necessarily to put it in the spotlight quite so much or to to work with it or to manage it or to to seek ways of supporting those people to overcome it if anything we might normalize it you know it's normal that you're going to feel scared going into your your first meeting with the president of the the, the university or whoever it might be um and actually it doesn't have to be that way Mm. So I think at the earlier stages, it's probably there, but it's more dismissed as a kind of just a lack of confidence and a lack of experience rather than it actually being more about something that has probably carried through with them for much of their life. I then think we kind of what I see is we almost can get to like a like a pivot point with it where for some of us, we've managed the symptoms of it well enough that we then get just enough confidence to actually vocalize that we have it and that we experience it. Um, and then it starts to look like we're kind of um, healed from it, if you will. Probably not. We probably just have coping mechanisms for it, right? Or we're just aware of it or we notice it. Um, but there is like this tipping point around actually having the confidence to kind of come out and say, hey, I, I experience imposter syndrome. And that's been one of the beautiful things that I've noticed really over the last um, the last few years, but um, but definitely probably the last decade of my career is people actually talking about it more um, and, and recognising that it is very much a shared experience. And what you were speaking to, Jamie, about when, you know, you tweeted about it and you suddenly got a lot of response, right? It doesn't surprise me at all because um, there is a lot of a sense of a community and common understanding being built around it at the moment. And that's kind of a beautiful thing because that also gives us an access point, even though it's coming from a slightly disempowered place, it does give us an access point to connect, to explore, to develop relationship around different points of being vulnerable with one another and to build Mm. community from from that kind of place and it's a much more heart-based place which I think is really really important when we actually work in a in an an industry in a profession sector that is very head-based a lot of the time. Are there ways that leaders might inadvertently I don't know further a feeling of imposter syndrome are there things that we should be coaching our teams um, and our employees that might help them either not develop it or address it earlier in their career, develop coping mechanisms earlier in their career? It's a really fine line to tread with it. And we have to be a little bit careful, especially when we have experiences of it ourselves, that we don't project our own experience of it Mm. onto other people. Um, And that's the thing I think to get mindful about. And so for for me, the the trick with being a leader that is working with people um, that you might notice seem to be experiencing this or you know, showing some signs in it, even if they're not articulating it, um, is to get curious about what's going on with them rather than to to assume um, mm. and to project our own experience of it on them. And so I will often, you know, once I've kind of developed that safe space to have those kind of conversations with people, the thing that I'm often curious about is what is the, the belief that they have about themselves that has this occur for them so generally it's like um, we all have these like fears that we have about ourselves and none of them are true they're all kind of these little sort of micro lies that we've built up of, across our whole life but they're things that we we hold and we carry and then we develop behaviors coping mechanisms if you will that kind of shroud them and those coping mechanisms and those behaviors are often the first sign that someone that you will notice as a leader that someone has um a degree of imposter syndrome coming on so some of the things to watch out for are um and they're really varied so this is why to get curious about it you're going to notice in some people that they get very quiet 
they won't speak up in meetings they won't have their voice heard um other people you'll notice that they diminish themselves so they might say something brilliant but they'll immediately caveat it afterwards with you know hey i'm saying this great idea but here's 20 reasons why it wasn't a good idea Mm. or you know oh but don't listen to me or that's just a silly thing or or they prefix what they're going to say with with something like that um the other the other sign of it that i see a reasonable amount of is proving people that display lots of proving behaviors that they feel like they've got to prove how intelligent they are prove how great they are um, and they might like really really over egg it um as well um, and the other sign of it that i see a lot of is what i call condition stacking so condition stacking is a state of um i will be ready when mm. um i will be confident when i have done 20 different training courses on this thing I will be able to deliver that presentation when I've spent 100 hours trawling over my slide deck. You know, that kind, those kind of behaviours are often a sign of someone experiencing some kind of it. So the thing to notice is what the what the behaviour is that you're seeing um, and then to, you know, to, to in a very kind of um, loving and supportive way, reflect that back to the person and get curious. Hey, what's that about? I noticed that you you're displaying some behaviors that that feel like you feel you need to prove yourself to me like what's that about what you what what do you might be afraid of and and after a while they'll start to dig in that into that my my own versions of it the the fears that i have about myself which aren't true but i explain i display a lot of behaviors may even be doing one of it right now is i have a fear that i'm stupid Mm. Um, I have a fear that I'm lazy I have a fear that I'm weak I have a fear that I'm not lovable like all of these kind of things and we don't often put them on loudspeaker but what we do do is let our like internal bully kind of play that broken record over and over without ever really listening to what the words are saying um so when we're coaching and supporting people in our teams or in our organizations around this the trick really is to to actually put it on loudspeaker Mm. Um, and then to interrogate just how that thing, that fear that we have about ourselves just is not true. Um, and then when we realise that all of the behaviours that we're displaying that are the symptoms of imposter syndrome um, are essentially founded based on a lie, then we can actually start to unpick and unpack them and choose a different way of being. That is absolutely fascinating. Like the the things that you shared about the different ways that it manifests Um, The proving yourself thing, I have led people that have that tendency to do that. And it can be a way that colleagues sort of feel like, oh, he's such a know-it-all or, oh, he's always got to talk about how great he is or whatever. And and I really want to highlight that, like, you don't have to prove yourself to me conversation as being something that um, not only benefits the person in terms of their perception of themselves, but also benefits them in their relationship with their colleagues. Absolutely. And like, you know, I, I see the way that you, you talk on online on Twitter about the way that you, you think about your own leadership. And I know that you you are one of the people out there that's really, a, you know, waving the flag for being very empowering um, as a leader. And, you know, I, there are a few people in our sector that I think are doing a, a fabulous job of this. And the fact that you even run this podcast is a sign of it. Right. But but for me, there's some really there's some fundamentals like uh, planks that we need to lay with our teams that we as a sector and actually just in leadership as a whole um, are not really used to laying and there's a couple that I lay that tend to surprise people when they first hear me say it and I'm not sure they really actually believe me when I when I say it so I then have to you know I have to prove it to them actually in a way Um, and those are two like basic principles when people join my company um, or or when they become a coaching client or um, you know when they become a consultancy client 
the two principles of these things. One is that I choose to love them. Mm. I actually don't believe that love is something that needs to be earned or won. I actually believe that love is something that we have the choice to be able to give um, Mm. to people. And love isn't actually a concept that we talk a lot about in the workplace because we're kind of like, oh, no, that's just for outside of work. That's for my Mm -hmm. friends and family. But I don't actually believe that's true. So firstly, when people join my company, I make it clear to them, I love you and I've got you. So that's just a given. And I think sometimes that will just lay a bit more of a sense of uh, psychological safety in the space. And the other is that I already believe that you're brilliant. Mm. Um, I'm not in this conversation um, because you need to prove to me that you're brilliant like I already would believe now now that's the one where the imposter syndrome really creeps in because if they've got imposter syndrome they are sat there telling themselves oh but I'm not brilliant and Tracy thinks I am and that she's going to find me out later on so that's still going to run but I still think it's on us as leaders to to actually reflect you know to say out loud um, I believe you're brilliant I think we play this really kind of toxic game in the workplace of waiting to be validated by someone and that we've got a bit of a social kind of perception that it's not okay to ask for validation or acknowledgement um so what happens is people kind of wait for it and the leader might not necessarily realize that someone's waiting for it and then that person makes it mean that they are not any good at what they do because the leader has not given them the the validation or the pat on the back that they need or whatever it might be so so another thing that i'm really trying to normalize in the work that i do is people actually asking for the validation and the acknowledgement that they need um, and for it to be okay to, to say to someone, hey, I need some acknowledgement right now. Because um, there is always something that we can give, always yeah. something. But we don't always realise that someone needs it because especially yeah. people with imposter syndrome, they keep it really quiet that they yeah. need that. That is, a, when you talked about that, I'm reminded of a time, one of my um, team members at Miami we had a sort of a, a coaching conversation. Some behaviors needed to shift and change, but there were things about the person, you know, 90% of what they were doing was great. And I really wanted to um, stress that. Um, and this person at the end of the coaching conversation said, um, I, words of affirmation are my love language. So as you see improvements, can you let me know that you're seeing them? And I thought that that was A, so brave to do that. Um, and so, so helpful to me um, as a leader to understand this is what motivates uh, this person. It's, it's that, um, that being told and reminded that I value this person and that this person brings great skill and that this person is making big improvements in the area they needed to improve in and all of that. And that took a lot of bravery, I think. Do you feel like that's like kind of something when you coach people, are they a little anxious about asking for that? I think, uh, you know, I think your reflection that it takes bravery for someone to say it, but I think also as a leader, it takes a lot of bravery to hear it. You know, it's very easy for us to think we're a leader, therefore we know what we're doing. Um, right. Therefore we know how things should be or how things should be done. And, and I, you know, I've had to have all kinds of breakthroughs in myself around this because you know, I've kind of trotted through life sort of thinking, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't need validation. Like that's just needy if you need someone yeah. to validate you. And, and actually what I've realized is one of the reasons why I'm probably so triggered by people asking for validation is because I'm actually really terrible asking for it myself <laughs> when I need it. Right. So, um, so I think the thing to be aware of is like where we as leaders actually have our own edges around this stuff. Like what are the things that people might ask or need of us that they are actually being br- very brave to ask ask those things of us 
how do we respond to it like we can look in our bodies or in our kind of you know the words or whatever we however we react and to get curious about ourselves like what is that because we might be finding a new edge or a new growth area in our own leadership so i think that that bravery that you're speaking about is um it's like a dance right it's kind of dancing with in the moment of them them taking a step into them being brave but you also being able to take that step into your being brave to actually listen and hear and adjust and adapt to what somebody else needs that might not actually be the same as um, your own needs or the needs that you see in the rest of the team and then having to normalize that for the rest of the team as well that it's okay for people to to their love language to be completely different to the next person yeah, I, I had shared when I transitioned um, with the person who's the interim, um, the feedback that this person really um, needs external validation has asked for that. Um, so be aware of that um, so that um, she can, you know, continue that that for him, which I think is really, really important. And I'm just sitting here struck by how most leaders don't get a training and how to be a, a good, empathetic and compassionate leader. But I'm also struck by the idea, and, and something happened yesterday, and I feel really vulnerable sharing it on the podcast, but I'm going to anyway. Um, I'm going to try to do it without crying, so listeners, I apologize if I do, but yesterday I was made aware that four sentences in an op-ed I wrote were completely plagiarized from another source. And what had happened was, I a year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago, I had created a bunch of notes about a topic. A bunch of them were the, the, just my free-flowing slots, and some were copy-pasted from something. But when I went back to them a year and a half later, I did not remember at all that I had copy-pasted any of it. I thought it was all just my free-flowing notes. And so um, when I was made aware, I was mortified, horrified, and, and beat myself up really bad all day yesterday. It was an inadvertent mistake. It was absolutely not intentional. I try to be overboard with crediting and citing sources when, when I have that opportunity. But um, I was beating myself up so hard over that. And it sort of fed into like, look, you are a fraud. Like, look at you. You have to steal other people's words in order to be successful and to write something good. And my husband said, how would you treat a staff, one of your staff, if they made the same mistake? Why are you treating yourself so differently from that? And I think that that's you know, that's that sort of, uh, I feel imposterish. I feel like a fraud. I feel like people should stop listening to this podcast. I'm, I'm struggling with even recording today because of that feeling. And I just, I, I want other people to kind of hear what my husband's great advice was about um, treating yourself with empathy and compassion when you feel in this sort of space and, and where you're feeling sort of vulnerable and, and like you missed the mark. Mistakes happen. People make mistakes. For me, from the way I was raised, no, they don't. What are your thoughts on that, Tracy? The one thing that I, I really just want to check in right now is like, I mean, firstly, to, to acknowledge you and thank you for sharing and, and opening up about that. Um, and I get it. Like I've, I've made messes all, all over my career. Thank goodness that I've made messes, right? They're brilliant. <laughs> They're beautiful, little, wonderful messes. But really just, just to check in, like, what do you need around it right now? Honestly, I feel like I need to hear from the world or something you know something that you know you you made a mistake and the world's not going to end because of it um and you, because you were in a rush and you you know copy pasted from old notes um doesn't mean that you're a fraud but it 
I don't know how to get there on my own. You know, like I, I feel a little better today than I did yesterday, but I'm, I'm feeling very, yesterday I just wanted to post on Twitter, like y'all, I'm, I'm just done. I'm, I'm a fraud and y'all shouldn't be paying any attention to me. Um, and I'm not sure how to get past that, to be honest. I mean, I, I would um, I would explore it from, there are a few different perspectives of it. I mean, you know, one of the things to, to really be aware of is that we will quite often try and pass over our feelings and emotional responses to things quite quickly um, so as to move on because they feel uncomfortable, right? It feels, yeah. it feels horrible to, to be telling yourself that you're a fraud. Or you might sit with it for a little bit longer and just allow yourself to feel the feels or to, to, to get angry or to be sad or to cry or, you know, whatever you need around it. And just to recognize that that is just part of your humanity. Um, and the, my assertion is that it's the breadth of your humanity that makes you such a valuable member of this community. Um, and that's that's all of it. Um, that's the sadness that's the anger that's the grief that's the brilliance that's the celebration that's the the happiness the joy it's the whole thing none of it is more valuable or less valuable than the next thing I would offer you just to to hold that space for yourself and to ask for whatever you need in it um, you may actually pro- find that there are a hell of a lot of people in your community well you I'm sure you will that are going to tell you that you know that what your internal bully's up to right now is kind of just making stories up in my style of coaching we have these things called survival mechanisms and they're they're a way of like labeling those predictable behaviors Mm. um that we have and one of mine is called virginia wolf in sheep's clothing um because she's a, a very powerful storyteller that will tell me why i'm a terrible person and she'll make up the most amazing stories in the world to persuade me that i am just the worst person in the world but there's another side to that coin of Virginia Wolf, uh, Virginia Wolf in sheep's clothing, and that's that she's a brilliant storyteller. Mm. And that's also why I'm a great content strategist and a great leader and a great public speaker and all of those things, right? So, so you might also take a look at what are the things about what your internal bully is up to that is also says something beautiful about you. Um, my assertion is that it speaks to your compassion, the fact that you care deeply about this, the fact that you were diligent enough to sit there and take all of these wonderful notes and... And, you know, ultimately, like, you know, the, the construct of the human language is that we are all at any at any given time. We are all just taking these little bricks that are words and reconstructing them and just assembling them in a different way and doing something with them. That's all we're actually up to the whole time. And that's all you did in that situation. It's just a few of those bricks were already formed together. And it was like, you know, you're building a Lego tour and you just took a chunk that were already filmed. But that's OK. I promise no one no one died. <laughs> that's my, um, my husband was just like oh my gosh <laughs> when I was you know in you know crying like I can't believe this you know he's like nobody died they fixed it they they took the the article they credited the source like it it's you're okay but yeah it, it didn't help the imposter syndrome at all but but I do have um, an actual activity and a, and a tool that I can kind of you know very lightly talk through right now that I that I do use a lot with people and I use it a lot myself and it's such a simple tool that I'm at a a stage now where I can just kind of use it in my head I don't even have to like write it down or speak it out loud um and I do have to acknowledge this comes from the the company that I trained with called accomplishment coaching um so I'm not going to like give the full details of it but basically the, the the tool is to take you through you just get really present to the upset Um, around the thing just get really really present and allow all of the feels and all of the emotions to show up and just let them be there for as long as you need them to be and then you take a look at what are the facts that actually happened 
in in this situation and just the facts and you report on them as though you are a Pulitzer winning journalist like Mm. reporting on something with you know with the utmost integrity that you can only report on the facts and only the facts then you just distinguish that and I I typically find when I do this the moment that you distill it down to the actual facts separate from all the emotions the feelings the things that you're making it mean you actually release a lot of the energy that that Mm. thing is holding on you and then from there, when you want to do what you want to do is then take that energy that you had before, put it somewhere else. And the place to put it is around what is the highest and best thing that I am actually committed to here? Um, and it might, you know, it might be like I, my highest and best is that I'm committed to the exchange of knowledge or to sharing ideas or to amplifying the voice of other people um, or to whatever it might be. My, my highest and best is always, always comes back to my um, I have a purpose word. My purpose word is play. Um, so it's, and I find that I can always recenter myself back in that. What am I really committed to in life? I'm really committed to being playful and being curious. Those mm. two things. And then from there. Okay, I'm going to put the energy, take the energy away from the upset. I'm going to put it into the thing that I'm actually committed to. Now, what action do I want to take that's in alignment with my commitment, not an action that's in alignment with the the story that you're telling yourself to beat yourself up with? Hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you see anything for yourself in that framework? Yeah, that's. I think that's that is really smart. Just that, the idea of the facts, and I almost feel like I need to just like write, type up what the facts are. This is what happened. This is how I reacted to it. This is what I'm going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again, which I've processed. But I think, you know, for me, I'm one of those people that needs to hand write things to really have them solidify. And so I think that that's what I will do after we're, we're done here. But this kind of segues me into another question, which is like, it feels like quote unquote, healing from imposter syndrome is not a linear path that you're, you're gonna go in loops and circles. And has that been your observation? My observation and my personal experience (laughs) of it as well. And uh, I mean, uh, and I'll speak more about the personal experience to start with, like there are areas in my life where I have great coping mechanisms around it, and I feel good about it. Generally, I can relate to it as like a kind of, it's a little bit like that annoying friend you know, that they're kind of, they're just a little bit annoying, but you love them. And actually you kind of, you get a lot out of them being in your life. So that's kind of the real way that I tend to, to relate to imposter syndrome and survival mechanisms and, and disempowering behaviours like this. is like, they're a, a pack of naughty puppies. Like they're actually quite cute and alluring. And we actually get, we're drawn to them. But when you, you look away for just a second and they're around the corner kind of, you know, chewing the chewing the COVID or or your remote control or whatever it might be, you know, they're, they're up to no good behind your back. Um, but the thing to recognise is that there's something, there's something about being in the state of believing that we're an imposter that we keep coming back to. It's addictive, it's attractive. It's somehow actually, although this might, might sound counterintuitive, it makes us feel safe, that it's almost safer to believe that we're not good enough than it is to actually believe that we are enough. Part of the, the process is around like recognising that. So not trying to, the thing that I will often encourage people to do is not try to remove the imposter syndrome. Because then what we're doing is we're making ourselves wrong for the fact that we even experience it. 
And if we get trapped into that narrative of I am wrong to experience imposter syndrome, it actually plays back in and feeds back into that same narrative um, again, which is basically that the narrative is I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Um, I'm broken. Um, so what we need to do is we need to recognize and start to love on those parts and pieces of ourselves. So professionally, I'm really good at loving on my my imposter syndrome now. I just have a I've just reframed the narrative like it's it's the part of me that wants to learn more. Mm. Um, it's the part of me that wants to advance in a, a profession. It's the part of me that's actually curious about what other people in the room might be thinking. Um, I just need to remember to tune that curiosity to it being about what they might be thinking about the topic that we're talking about and not what they're thinking about me. I, I think what I'm hearing you say there is it's imposter syndrome isn't just your professional professional life necessarily, but also that you can be in different phases of understanding how to sort of cope with it at the same time uh, across different parts of your life. It's kind of fascinating to actually look at different parts of your life because that's going to give you the access to, well, how comes it's how comes it's okay over there? What is it? What are about the circumstances of that part of my life that actually make this manageable and make it be a comfortable experience for me or an experience that I feel I can be with? And what is it about that experience over there that might be making this feel really disempowering um, and debilitating for me and what can I learn from the experience that actually feels quite empowered right now and, and apply to that other area in my life so I feel like we almost need to look outside of the the professional conversation um because that's often the one that we do have it in it's almost like it's okay to talk about imposter syndrome professionally but we tend not to speak about it quite so much from personal perspectives but um when I work with my coaching clients actually and we do the kind of the segue conversation you know where else does it show up um one of the areas that that is often quite fascinating to interrogate with people is um friendships Mm. um, around how they show up with their friendship groups um and it it will show up quite a lot for some people in in those spaces um or it will not show up at all um and figuring out for them you know where they are um with their relationship to it in in those relationships is is really interesting to unpick sometimes when we want to create a breakthrough for ourselves the idea of creating a breakthrough in the workplace feels like it's a very high gradient place in which to and a very um uh, high exposure place in which to make that breakthrough so sometimes when we're looking at other areas in our lives we're actually looking at areas where we might be able to make like lower gradient kind of um like almost like training kind of runs to mm-hmm. be able to build up to the thing so I had a client recently who in their professional life was just really noticing that they weren't able to ask for their needs to be met um in anything but the idea of asking their clients to be meeting their needs was like they they were not going to go there and do that um but one of the areas that we we recognized and unpicked in another area in their life where they weren't getting their needs met was around um asking their family for them to be able to eat what they wanted to eat for dinner like every night they were not eating what they wanted to eat even though they were doing all the cooking so that was the area that we would create practices and exercises around like having them start to ask for their needs to be met in terms of hey i want to have pizza tonight um and then once they start to build up the practice of doing it there then we can start to build up the practice in other areas of their lives is this something that if you're dealing with this sort of asking for what you need I know how do you build the confidence to be able to do that with your supervisor or with another colleague or you know how what what advice do you give people for getting to the point of feeling comfortable doing that it's such a great question and I actually um this is where the the leadership dance kind of comes into play again that we were speaking about there's there's something around the terminology that gets used that that skews this for people slightly 
And the terminology that I think we trip over and we get confused around are the differences between um, what we need, um, needing help and asking for support. Mm. And those are di three different things. And in the workplace, there's a bit of a tendency for people to say things like, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. Which is said from a really heartfelt place, full of compassion, full of all the best intentions in the world. But if you're on the receiving end of that um, and you're in an imposter syndrome kind of swirl, how you might receive that is, oh, you think I need help. Oh. You therefore think I can't cope or I can't, I'm not capable or I haven't got this. So it can actually be a disempowering conversation. So this is why there needs to be that breakdown on on both sides. The, the, the question that I find is the, the the probably the more effective one is what do you need mm -hmm. rather than how can I help you or how can I support you? So I, I realise that's not entirely asking your question because you're asking like how do I how do I express my needs when actually I'm kind of saying, well actually you need someone to ask you what you need. Yeah. Um but you you know you might actually go in into that conversation, frame it that way. Um hey I've identified some things that I need and I, I noticed that I'm making this mean a million things about me and I can frame it that way like oh, I've, I've, I noticed that I need a day off and I noticed that I'm really really worried boss person um, sat off opposite the table <laughs> that that you're going to think that I'm weak that you're going to think I'm pathetic that you're going to think I'm incapable um, and maybe actually being really open and vulnerable about bringing that into the conversation so that they're actually fully aware of what actually is going on over the other side um, of, of the table perhaps something like that yeah I, I usually try to frame when I'm talking to my team and try to frame it as, is there something you need that I'm not providing to you? Um, to kind of say, it's okay to tell me that I'm not hitting the mark with you. Um, because I think that there's a certain level of responsibility that leaders have to be the one that says that. Because it's, it, it, as a person who also reports to someone, um, you know, it's, it, it's hard sometimes to, say I'm not it feels like you're telling the person that they're not doing their job well which maybe that that's not the case it's just they aren't aware of a need that you have and so making yourself more vulnerable as a leader I think helps and and gets people into a different headspace to be more vulnerable than back with you and we have to be the clearing for that so, so we we have to start by revealing what our needs are um because if we don't talk about our needs then we are not creating a safe space for them to be able to talk about their needs you know it's a little bit like being able to put your health and well-being first i mean i i spent years being being that boss who would you know throw out all the lines about how everyone should be healthy and protect their time and take proper leave and not work stupid hours and all that kind of stuff but all the mean in the meantime i was working 90 hour weeks and it wasn't until i actually stopped doing that that my team were able to then follow and it's mm. exactly the same in talking about our needs so you know, this is classic Brené Brown stuff, right? Really, we have to show up as being vulnerable yeah. um, before we can create that safe space for them. And you showing up in this podcast and talking about the, you know, the, the piece that you wrote and your, your fears about plagiarism and all that kind of stuff is modelling exactly that thing. So we, we need to make those messes. We, we need to be able to do that stuff and we need to make our messes in the open in front of our team so that they actually feel that they can do the same and then engage in a conversation with us about like, and how, we, how do we want to clean this up? Yeah. So is part of overcoming imposter syndrome understanding where your strengths and weaknesses are? And, you know, is that does that play into the conversation at all? Knowing like I'm really good at this, but this is an area where I need more help with. But that the fact that I need help in that area doesn't mean I'm not good at the rest of it. 
Yeah, and I would I would try and um, and I'm I'm saying this from a really sort of elevated position because of the conversation we're in, and I'm not saying for a second that I would do this every day, but I would try not to use the word weakness. Mm. It's a language of being less than. Um, I tend to look at it as being like the things that we are reliable for and not reliable for. Um, and you know, I I know that for me, I mean, in, in the coaching work that I do, we we give um, I do an exercise that gives people what we call their essence name. It's basically a five word uh, description of who they are when they show up as their most brilliant version of themselves. And so, um, my essence name is um, I'm zeal, I'm leader, I'm integrity, I'm connection, and I'm Murph. So, um, I know that I'm pretty reliable for showing up as, as those things. There are definitely things that I am not very reliable for showing up with. Um, grace uh, is one of them like humility sometimes <laughs> like ease and flow and those kind of states of being like I'm not really always reliable for them so those are the ones that I might need to put a little bit more intention into thinking about them are they weaknesses that I don't show up that way no they're just part of my humanity they're just yeah. part of the what I refer to as the beautiful ridiculousness of human beings I know it's a cliche but we'd all be boring if we were the same so mm -hmm. so why la label them as weaknesses we're all like our fingerprints. We're all different. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't bring your best version of yourself to things or improve on things that you want to improve on. There was a really cool, um, this was actually from when I was doing my, my coach training program a few years ago, there was a really cool activity that we did. And this was, this is not something I do with my coach clients, but it's something that we did in as coaches training um, to take a look at uh almost like states of being that you are very very reliable for being but they never show up together mm. um one of them typically is very head-based and one of them is often very heart-based um and mine and it was you know very much reflected to me by my my coaching colleagues um mine is determined as being genius and delight so you will either get like the delightful version of me show up or you'll get the kind of the intellectual sort of wisdom side of me show up but those two things don't often show up together so a breakthrough for me as a leader is to is to reconcile those two things and be able to have them in the space together. And there are many, many times in my career where I can definitely see that one has shown up and not the other. So the delight might show up of me being like really nice to people and being a yes person or a people pleasing. And then when I'm doing that, I just feel completely disempowered or the genius. And I, I have a slight discomfort with labeling it that way, but the, the more kind of, you know, intellectual part of me definitely shows up if I'm giving people feedback on a piece of work where oh my god I can be awful like, I can be so brutal because I just like in in service of efficiency I'll just go right this this this, this and this needs changing and I don't dwell on the things that are wonderful and beautiful and incredible and I have to like really really think about that and really lean in to bring in the delight into giving feedback to people because otherwise I can just be cutting and it's you know I, I recognize that it's not a nice experience for the person on the other side of it but it's taken me years of of work to to recognize that that's how I can be and to 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 be to have an access point to try and change something about it I have loved every minute of this conversation it has been so helpful um but before we kind of wrap up what it would be the number one tip that you would give a listener um, who's struggling with imposter syndrome. There's a really great book. It's by a lady called Nancy Levin and the book's called Worthy. Um, the book actually is pitched as sounding like it's about financial worth. So you open this book thinking you're going to, you're going to read about how to make your money, your money sorted and get rich and all of that kind of stuff. Um, 
But in this book, there's just a line that just says, you know, it talks about a lot how we, we feel like we need to prove our worth. And there's a line that just reframes it all. And it just says, you're worthy just because you were born. Wow. Um, and I come back to that so often. And I think these are the areas for us to practice with our imposter syndrome. It's around walking into a room and saying, I'm worthy just because I'm here. And I play with that. That sounds very heavy. Like I've played with it. I've got one client who now has a practice where every time they say something in a meeting in their head, after they say the thing in their head, they then go, that was brilliant. Mm. Um, Just to like validate, give themselves the validation, just to like, they're they're busy kind of unpacking and beating themselves up just to go, that was brilliant. And the other practice they took on that's been really working for them is to walk into a room and just believe that everybody in that room loves them already. Mm. Um, so those are the kind of things just to the the wisdom that I would hopefully impart is that, you know, whatever the thing is that you want to actually practice believing that it's already there, mm. your worthiness, your brilliance, um, your enoughness, um, all, all of it, the love that it's all actually there, the mm. confidence, um, we actually just can, um, and do just need to choose to believe that it's there. That is so beautiful. That is just, that hits me here. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, for people who want to um, maybe work with you in the future or have a conversation with you, where can people find you? I'm all over the place. So I'm, I use Twitter a lot. So I'm at Tracy Plow on Twitter. So T-R-A-C-Y-P-L-A-Y-L-E. The consultancy company that works in higher ed is Pickle Jar Communications. We also have the Content Ed which is the the conference and the training programs around it Uh, my personal website uh, which is also the coaching most of the coaching work although I do do some of that through pickle jar is tracyplow.com I also run something called utterly content as well which is a a non-education sector thing for content professionals so lots and lots of places for people to to connect with me and I I love hearing from people and welcoming people into things and I run all kinds of you know conference talks and try and do a lot of like blogging and uh, run some free workshops and things like that for people because I always want to make sure there's an access point for everyone to be able to to get involved in this work um and whenever I run group coaching programs I always make sure there's a scholarship place available as well so um so just also to iterate if people want to connect with me or work with me in a way it doesn't always have to be a paid way to get there there are always ways to be able to access this work without it needing to be a transaction you could, for example, start a podcast um, and, ha- you know, get two seasons of it in and then, you know, have her be a guest on your show and get some like free coaching while you while you're recording. That was my <laughs> strategy. It was I plotted this out like a year ago. I, I've been following Tracy for a long time and with actually a personal uh, social media account that I had um, before the current one that I have. And there's a lot of wisdom that she shares and she's just a fun follow. So I hope that if nothing else, that you will follow her there. And I hope that you will follow me and that you will reach out if you have any questions. My uh, social uh, on Twitter is Jamie Hunt IMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. I hope you'll use the hashtag HigherEdCMO to spark some conversation around this episode. Um, and I am looking forward to your reactions. What did you learn? What, what are you going to take away from this? So thank you so much, Tracy. It has been absolutely a privilege to talk with you about this. I hope that we talk again in the future. For the listeners, uh, let's go bust some silos. And I'm going to add to this, remember, you are worthy.
Hey y'all, Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing, learning community of 4,000 members, and we love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.